of Ruth, the second chapter, verses 1 through 12, page 413 in your pew Bible.
you stand with us as we begin our service in prayer? Adam, it's good to have you with us this morning. Would you kindly lead us? morning will you take your brown hymnal instead of the red and turn to number 521 521 it is the same hymn just with a more familiar tune 521 in the brown <clears throat>
Awesome. It's a wonderful song. It's a piano player's favorite. Four, four ninety three in the brown. <coughs> That's when you met, right? Four ninety three. It is well.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, and that will be verses 1 through 10, page 18, 17 in your pew Bibles, and when you come to that, please stand with us. Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints of Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Father in heaven, as we ponder this, Lord, we pray your presence amongst us. May your Holy Spirit dwell with us this hour. Bring our hearts to comfort and rest, and for the lost, Lord, pierce it, that they would understand what Christ means in all of our lives. In the name of Christ we ask, amen. You take your red handle this time and turn to number 30. Number 30 in the red. Three zero.
our text this morning is the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Today we're going to turn our attention to the subject of redemption. The theme of redemption is indeed woven throughout the Old and New Testament as one continuous, unbroken thread which finds its beginning in the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, where Job acknowledges, and I'm reading now, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet (coughs) in my flesh will I see God. Job 19, verse 25 and 26. It continues on to the last book of the Bible, where the 24 elders sing a song of praise to Christ, And they sing, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased. King James Version says, you redeemed men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 5 verse 9. Redemption is what the gospel is all about. Redemption is the Bible's main theme. It is therefore very important that we are clear on its meaning and its application, and we will get into some of this today. And as we do so, let us pray for the Lord's wisdom. Heavenly Father, redemption. Wow. Marvelous doctrine. Pray that you will help us to understand it and to have a new and a fresh look into the heart of God as you set out to redeem your people and bring them into your family. Not everyone is honored with that decision. Not everyone comes, although the gospel will be preached to them. There is a resistance. There is a negative aspect to the preaching of the truth. We pray by your Spirit that you will overcome those things, show us the reality of redemption and the importance of it for our souls and for the sake of our future. Bless our families. We have the responsibility to understand these biblical truths and teach them to our children that they too may come to know the God of the universe. We ask that you would be honored and glorified today. Thank you for those that are here. I pray for those that couldn't make it, who are sick. May they be strengthened. May they be able to watch on the uh, network so that their hearts are blessed. In Christ's name, amen. 
We're going to talk today about the subject of redemption. My approach, the need of redemption, number one, the way in which redemption is accomplished, two, the results of Christ's redemption, three, those who are redeemed, and then we'll close with some practical uh, considerations. Firstly, then, the need of redemption. Redemption presupposes an inability to possess because of loss through forfeiture or sale or involuntarily loss because of captivity or slavery. And the first emphasis, the voluntary nature of our indebtedness at times, and the second is the involuntary nature, we can't help that we were captured. In the Old Testament, we find an unusual law concerning a person called the Goel, G-O hyphen E-L. The Goel, or kinsman redeemer. This person is mentioned in the book of Ruth concerning Boaz, the near kinsman of Naomi. The function of a kinsman redeemer was to act as the protector of the defender, the savior of needy family members. The book of the law describes the work of this person. Let me read from Leviticus 25, 25. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and he sells some of his property, his nearest relative, the kinsman redeemer, is to come and redeem what his countryman has sold. So the picture here is of someone selling his land, may I say, his inheritance, to make ends meet, but to keep the land in the family. The kinsman redeemer had the right to buy the land back from the new owner. Probably this would be after the fact, right? I mean, the guy's in trouble, he doesn't exactly telegraph that to everybody. He just runs a sale and he sells off his land to this person without uh, without sharing that information with the rest of the family. But then the kinsman comes along and he finds out, whoa, you sold off a track of land that's part of the family estate. And so he steps in to buy it back. Again, verse 47 and following, speak of the alien or the foreigner in Israel who might become rich, and the Israelite who in poverty might become poor and sell himself to raise money to support his family. Verse 48, he retains the right of redemption after he has sold himself. One of his relatives may redeem him. This is a strange law that we're reading about here, but very important. So here we have two accounts, one concerning property, the other concerning a person, in which both have been lost from the family through voluntary forfeiture or sale. The Israelites became so impoverished that he sold his land himself to pay the bills. And in so doing, 
he became indentured and thus unable to free himself unless his kinsmen bought his freedom. Thus, because of a voluntary servitude, the need of redemption became acute. If he had had enough money to support his family, he would have never sold his land. He would have never sold himself. But having done this, he is inextricably bound till someone (laughs) comes up with the money to redeem him or until the year of the Jubilee, another strange doctrine in the Old Testament, whichever them came first. On the 50th year, the Jubilee, all slaves, all servants in Israel were automatically released. They were given their freedom. Doesn't matter how long they were in exile. Doesn't matter who owned them. All of that just ended on the year of Jubilee and everybody was set free. Now, this concept of the Redeemer should not be too hard for us to grasp. We have in our country a familiar idea in the pawn shop. I don't know of any lot pawn shops around here. There used to be one in downtown Lapeer. I don't know if it's still there. It goes like this. If a person is short on cash, he or she can take something of the family that is of value, maybe a watch or a piece of jewelry or a musical instrument, and pawn it. The pawnbroker agrees to lend a certain amount of cash while holding the family item as security. But the pawnbroker does not own the item. Pawned until and unless that person defaults on the loan. The true owner has the right under law to redeem his valuables within an agreed-upon time period. And upon payment, the pawned item is freed from the encumbrance and its return to the original old order. It is a voluntary debilitation that the person goes through. We had pawn shops in Chicago on State Street. State Street was the main drag that went down to the center of the city. And students, myself included, if we ran out of money, we could go to the pawn shop and pawn something of value if we had something of value. Well, I had a little ukulele that I had bought earlier, and I needed money. And this was the day uh, back in the 60s. Mom and Dad didn't send me money. You want to go off to college, you buy your own way. So off I went with my little ukulele, and I sold it to the pawn shop for 10 bucks because I needed some cash. They just put it on the shelf, and they give you, okay, uh, how long do you want to pawn it for? 30 days, 60 days. They will usually have something to say about that. So if you come back in that period of time and you pay... 
what was loaned to you with some interest, of course. They always have that. You get your ukulele back or whatever it was that you pawn. And it's kind of like a loan system, but you're paying for it eventually. And you're getting the money you need to function right now, right here. But eventually you get your item back if you have the means to recover it. But there is an addition to this voluntary indebtedness through forfeiture, through sale. There's an involuntary indebtedness through captivity or slavery. Think about that. There are many illustrations of this in the Bible. For example, Lot and his family being captured by the four kings of the valley, necessitating Abraham's intervention and rescue with his armed service, Genesis 14, you can read about it. The siege of Jerusalem was another one under Sennacherib in the days of Hezekiah, when God sent an angel of death who cut down Sennacherib's soldiers and officers, breaking the siege and setting Jerusalem free. You can read about that in Second Chronicles 32. But the best illustration of this kind of redemption is that of Israel from Egyptian bondage. When a Pharaoh rose to power, who knew nothing of the kindnesses of Joseph, he began to oppress the Israelites and to make them his slaves. They had involuntary their labor. They were simply outmanned and outgunned. So they became captives they became slaves of Pharaoh. Their plight, excuse me, their plight remained for hundreds of years until God sent Moses to negotiate their release. This is ever referred to in the Bible as redemption. Redemption. In Exodus 6, verse 6 and following, we read God put these words in Moses' mouth, Say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Boy, that's a... Wild description of redemption, isn't it? God says, I'm going to step in. I'm going to solve this problem that you Israelites are experiencing. You're going to be set free. You're going to become my people. In Second Samuel 7, verse 3, David's praise of God includes these thoughts. David says, Who is like your people Israel? the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. Again, when God was angry enough with Israel for the idolatry of the golden calf. He was angry enough to destroy them. 
Moses, we are told, lay prostrate before God in prayer for 40 days. Think of, think of that. Deuteronomy 9.25. And this was his prayer. O sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Deuteronomy 9, verse 26 and 27. We're getting to get a feel for what it means in, to be talking about redemption. Asaph, in Psalm 77, praised God, saying, With your mighty arm you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they writhed. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. The earth trembled. The earth quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footsteps were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What's that? That's the departure through the Red Sea. That's their escape from Egypt. And it's called a redemption. So, again and again, the Bible refers to the emancipation of Israel from Egyptian bondage as God's redemption of his people. They were bound in involuntary servitude to the Egyptian slave masters with no hope of release. There was no means of freedom. There was no strength of their own. They had no army. They had no weapons. And they had no one mighty enough to overthrow the captors and set them free. This is the need of redemption. These impairments show great need. They are in deep trouble unless someone steps in and helps them. To apply it spiritually, we would say that sinners bound by their sin are in just as serious a slavery and just as hopeless a condition bondage, so there is great need. Great need. Jesus taught, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Oh, they don't think of it that way, but that's the truth of it. He goes on, if the Son sets you free, you will be free. Indeed, John 8, verse 34. People don't normally think of themselves as being enslaved to sin, but they are. An easy way to prove it to them is tell them, try not to sin. Try not to sin for one hour. They won't make it. They hardly get past one minute. Their thought life, their activities, their aspirations, their goals, their loves, their hates. Those things keep going all the time in people and not to their good. Again, to the Pharisees, Jesus said, A tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who 
or evil say anything good. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, verse 33 and 34. These evil hearts bound these people to what they were. Every man, every woman, every child in the world, all the people of this room, every citizen of America either is or has been bound by slavery to sin because the scripture says all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, verse 23. And this slavery is both voluntary and involuntary on our part. Involuntary in the sense that sin entered the world through one man, the scripture says, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men. Romans 5, verse 12. Okay, now how did that happen? Paul answers, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, In Adam all die. Oh. Well, why should I be affected by anything that Adam did? Because Adam was the first man and the representative of manhood. And just like you as a mom or as a dad have children and your characteristics go into those children, be they how they look, how they reason, how they act, what their loves are, what their hates are. You as mom and dad parents affect how that turns out. So in Adam, Paul says, we all die. He's not alone in dying. Oh, eat of the forbidden tree and you will in that day It's a terrible thing to pass on to your progenity. Death. What do I get, Dad? What do I get, Mom, for being your child? Well, uh, let me tell you. You're going to die. And when you do, you're going to have to face God. Dad, that doesn't sound like... um, That doesn't sound like a party. No, son, it's not. It's more like a judgment. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Uh, Dad, did you do that to me? Yes, son, I'm sorry. But it's a done deal. Is there no remedy? Yes, one found in God's Son, the Lord Jesus, who will pay for your sins if you trust him to do that. But the voluntary nature of our enslavement to sin is what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him, 
as slaves, y'all are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether slaves to sin or to obedience. Oh. This slavery to sin is our great need of redemption. You cannot free yourself. I cannot free myself. You have no will to go free since sin has its pleasure and righteousness leaves a bad taste in your mouth. We are even blinded by our sin, by the prince of darkness, lest we see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ and come into the emancipation of his dispelling light. We are poor, blind slaves like Samson at the gristmill turning a stone with his life's energy to satisfy the wicked nature of his captors, unable to see his way back to God and impotent to free himself. Slavery to sin This is our great need for redemption. Secondly, the way in which redemption is accomplished. Well, as we look into the law of God concerning the redemption, a kinsman redeemer might bring to an impoverished fellow Israelite who had either sold his property or his person to raise money for his debts. That could happen. But how was that sold property reacquired? Or could it be required? How was the indentured Israelite freed from his slavery? Well, Leviticus 25, verse 26, speaks of the possibility of the poor man prospering and acquiring, I'm reading scripture, sufficient means to redeem it, referring to the property that he lost, which implies that money is needed to redeem the sold land. If he wants to buy it back, verse 28, if he does not acquire the means to repay, What he sold will remain in the hands of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. Jubilee was the 50th year. And on the 50th year, all slaves in Israel were automatically set free. Yeah. To go on with their own life, establish their own estates, their own homes and all of that. Every 50 years, all the slaves slaves in all of Israel were set free. Boy, what a strange law. Yeah, but what a gracious law. Think about that. That's the land. Concerning the sale of the person himself, which is an even more dire circumstance than selling your property, 
When the kinsman redeemer, that's the near relative, wanted to secure a man's freedom, the Bible says, and let me read it for you, the price for his release is to be based on the rate of pay paid to a hired hand for that number of years. Verse 51 says, He must pay for his redemption calculated on the price paid for him. So they go back to, what did he sell for? Okay, if you want this guy set free, we start with that and we come up with a price based on that starting point. Verse 52 says, he is to compute that and pay for his redemption accordingly. Now again, as an object lesson to Israel, that their land would be reclaimed after the exile was over, God retold to Jeremiah that his cousin would come to him and ask him to redeem his field, which he had sold. Since Jeremiah was his nearest relative, Jeremiah 32, verse 7. And so when his cousin came, he knew that God wanted him to buy the cousin's field, redeem it. To secure the purchase, Jeremiah, reading scripture, weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, he says. I had it witness. I weighed out the silver on the scales. Jeremiah 32, verse 9 and 10. No paper money. <laughs> Back in these days, you paid with real and real gold or silver that had value. What I want you to see is that in order for redemption to occur, a price had to be paid. There was always a price. Leon Morris in his book, the apostolic preaching of the cross builds an airtight case from the Greek words for redemption, their use in the Septuagint, and the Hebrew words they translate for the fact that redemption always necessitates the payment of a price in order to secure what is desired. And this is so much the case that even when the word redeem is used by itself, it always has the idea of a payment being made. Leviticus 25 passage. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and he sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem it. And redeem is the equivalent of saying, buy it back. How are you going to buy it back? From the new owner. Well, with money. A price. Deuteronomy 7, 8 says, The Lord redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Deuteronomy 9, 26 says that God redeemed his people by his great power. And it cross-references Nehemiah 1, verse 10. Psalm 77, with your mighty 
arm you redeemed Israel. Thus, when the psalmist pleads with God to redeem him, he's asking God, pay the price necessary to secure my release. I'm stuck here, God. I can't do anything to get free. I have no one to help. There are other texts. Psalm 26, 11. Redeem me and be merciful to me. Psalm 44, 26. Rise up, help us, redeem us because of your unfailing love. Psalm 49, 15. God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. Psalm 69, 18. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. In all of these incidents, brethren, redemption is so identified with paying a price that the word redeem can be used by itself and it still carries that meaning. Someone's got to pay to set you free. You're in bondage. You're in slavery. And you don't just walk out the gate. Now, do not think of redemption as a synonym for release. That's my point. For deliverance, as though those imprisoned are simply, oh, well, you're, you're set free, you can go now. No. <laughs> no one is simply set free, ever. Their freedom is bought with a price. Or if we were to change the imagery a little bit to a debt which is owed. The debt is not simply stricken from the ledger book. (laughs) No, it's never canceled like that. It is rather paid in full. Or you don't go free. How is that? Well, because you are accountable for the debt. That's all. Well, very generous for somebody to say, well, you can go free and and you're no charge. But that ain't going to happen. Now think of this. This has far-reaching implications when we speak of the redemption of sinners from their slavery to sin. Isaiah 19, verse, excuse me, Isaiah 29, verse 22, speaks of the Lord who redeemed Abraham. Isaiah 48, 20, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Psalm 71, 23, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you whom you have redeemed. Abraham, the head of the people of God, the father of the faithful, Jacob, the nation Israel, whose name was changed to Israel, and finally the psalmist, who is an individual citizen 
from the fountainhead to the people of God collectively, to the individuals among along the past, all are said to have been redeemed by the Lord. But at what price? Isaiah 52, verse 1 and following says, Awake, awake, O Zion. Shake off your dust. Rise up. Sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chain on your neck, O captive daughter of Jerusalem. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money, you will be redeemed. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. The Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So he will sprinkle many nations. And with what will Zion be redeemed? If not with money. If God is the caregiver, and we're held fast, if Satan has his tentacles in us, and we are enslaved to him, and we are, how are we going to get free? God doesn't need any money, then that's not going to work. Well, so with what? Will Zion be redeemed if not with money? How shall the prisoner break her chain on her neck and go free? How has the Lord comforted his people and redeemed Jerusalem and sprinkled many nations, as the scripture says? Peter answers, You know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without defect. He has chosen it was chosen before the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. First Peter 1, verse 18 and following. And Paul in Colossians 1.14 expands the thought of liberation by payment when he writes, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Not money, honey, blood. 
life for life. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews 9, verse 11 and following, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Wow. So, yeah, a price for our redemption was indeed paid, but it, it wasn't money. It wasn't gold, it wasn't silver, which oddly enough, Peter describes as perishable things. We don't normally think of gold and silver as perishable, but rather as very enduring elements. And we think of blood uh, as very perishable, right? Freeze it or pack it in ice for transport from the blood banks to the hospitals where it will be used for a surgical procedure on a needy patient. We think, well, it's got to be transported, and this is true, within a certain timeline, or the blood transported or not is not going to be any good for the new patient. Ah, but the blood of Jesus is infinitely imperishable compared to silver and gold. At the judgment, the elements will melt in fervent heat, we are told. But the blood of Christ has obtained, Peter says, an eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. On the ledger book of God's records of your sin and my sin. If you and I are trusting in Jesus as our Redeemer, there is no cancellation notice on your account, but instead, written in bold blood red letters, are the words paid in full. Paid in full. Precious life's blood of Christ. This is the price of our redemption. This is how we are set free from sin's tyranny. This is how we obtain an eternal redemption. God ever doing his saving work. Thirdly, from what are we redeemed? Since I have alluded to this a number of times, I'll just give you a few more scriptures that state things. Hosea 13, verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O oh death, 
are your plagues? Where, O death, is your destruction? God is saying, death doesn't win for the believer. Death doesn't win. In Lamentation 3, written by Jeremiah, Jeremiah rehearses before God what his enemies did to him. He says, They tried to end my life in a pit, and they threw stones at me. The waters closed over my head, and I thought I was about to be cut off. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. O Lord, you took up my case. And you redeemed my life. Lamentation 3, verse 55 and following. Nothing better than having God fight for you. Let me read it again. O Lord, you took up my case. And you redeemed my life. I was a goner. They threw me in the pit for one reason only. To end my life. They filled the pit with water. So I would drown and be no more. But God stepped in as Redeemer. You know, we too have enemies of our life, our soul. God's redemption addresses that as well. Galatians 4, verse 4 and following. When the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive full rights of sons. So, You are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Boy, think of it. We've gone from a committed sinful person in defiance to God. We've gone from that to becoming a prince or princess assigned to the royal throne. An heir of God's kingdom. In the previous chapter, Paul had told the Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come on the Gentiles from Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Galatians 3, 
verse 13 and following. In Titus 2, verse 11 and following, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live godly lives in this present age while we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Redemption is the work of God. Okay, from what were we redeemed? Well, from every enemy of our soul, from sin, from wickedness, from death, from hell, from the cause, curse rather, of the law, the accusations of the accuser, from the world's allurements, from the flesh's hold on our nature, we're free indeed in Christ. Free to be holy, free to be pure, free to live godly lives that are full of good works. This is also the proof of redemption. For without emancipation from sin, its hold on your life and mine, we have no reason to believe that redemption has visited us. You've heard it said that if Christ is part of your life, there will be a change in your life. Yeah. That brings us finally, who are the people that God redeems? Well, from what we've seen thus far, redemption by its very nature, is selective, not general. When an Israelite sold his property and later desired to redeem it or to have his kinsman redeemer redeem it, it was not all the property of Palestine, which was under consideration, but only that property which had been lost or forfeited. same could be said if the Israelite sold himself as a servant. They could do that. The kinsman redeemer did not go throughout the land paying the redemption price for every indentured Israelite, but only for his relative. Personal, select. It has generally been assumed, even by a large number of of the Christian community, that the redemption of Christ, well, that's different. How's it different? It is said that all men, without exception, are sold into sin and are slaves to wickedness. That's true enough. So... Christ came and lived and died to be the Redeemer of all mankind. Which is an assumption. And an assumption, I might add, which has no basis in fact. 
from what we have been learning about redemption. But even if we were not to arrive at this from an understanding of redemption itself and the whole concept of redeeming someone, we have a number of scriptures which speak of the selective nature of Christ's saving work. Isaiah 53 is full of it. And it's a text that's loaded with such statements. Let me read some. Surely he took our infirmities and carried out our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God. Verse 5, <coughs> he was pierced for our transgressions. <coughs> he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. Now, in this entire text, we have repeated references to Christ taking our infirmities, our sorrows, being pierced for our transgressions. There is reference to us and we. But of whom is Isaiah speaking? Is he saying that Christ was crucified for all men without exception? We are the us, the we, and the our. Everybody. Well, Isaiah is addressing Israel, the elect nation, and by extension, this Old Testament text is brought to bear on the people of God in the New Testament by the New Testament authors. So what do we find when we come to the New Testament interpretation. Romans 4.25 He was delivered over to death, says Paul, for our sins. Isaiah 53, verse 5, is what he's quoting. He was raised to life for our justification. Note that the hour is the New Testament believers. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For what I preached, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins, live for righteousness, by his wounds you have been healed. Which is a quote from Isaiah 53.6. But we have more in Isaiah 53 than just pronouns. Us, we are. Verse 8. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. What? Yeah. He died for his people, not everyone in the world. Verse 11, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. What? Yeah, many, not all. How so? He will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sins of many 
and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 is loaded with statements on particular redemption, many of which are carried over to the New Testament and applied to the Church of Christ. Let me give you some more examples. Hebrews 9, verse 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So, the Old Testament prophecies concerning the work of Christ tell us that he would be offered up as a sacrifice for his people alone and not for every person in the world. That's a hard pill to swallow, especially when we think of our relatives and friends and family. God is not obligated to save all. May I say God is not obligated to save any. That he does is a matter of his grace and his mercy. New Testament scriptures corroborate this. Zechariah's song in Luke 1 verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up the horn of salvation for us. Matthew 20, verse 28, the son of Bayan did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Many, but not all. John 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me, and I laid down my life for the sheep. John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Acts 20, verse 28, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Titus 2, verse 14, Paul says that we await the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. John writes of Jesus, to him who loved us and has freed us from our sin by his blood and has made us 
to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5, verse 9, the last book of the Bible. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchase, there's redemption, you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. So, brethren, from Genesis to Revelation, the doctrine of particular redemption is on the pages of Holy Scripture for the unprejudiced to see. We have a marvelous illustration of this in the book of Ruth. The story of Ruth and Boaz is the account of a Moabite woman, a foreigner to Israel's nation and to Israel's God. As a Moabite, Ruth was part of a nation of people whom God had cursed, saying, let me read it for you, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation, Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. And we ask the question, boy, this is very strong. So we ask the question, why? Why? (laughs) Answer, because when Israel fled from Egyptian slavery under Moses, the Moabites would not give them any assistance and even tried to harm them. Well, Ruth was a Moabite, not an Israelite, not part of the people of God, that's for sure. By all reasons, she should have been an outcast among the Israelites. At one time, she was an idolater like Orpha, her sister-in-law. But God worked in her heart, and she took refuge under Jehovah. Nevertheless, her status would ever remain that of an alien, a poor widow with no means of recovery, no inheritance of her own, no home of her own, unless someone would step forward and pay off her indebtedness by her deceased husband's property and claim her for his wife. Oh, yeah, the likelihood of that's going to happen, right? Well, Boaz of Bethlehem was that redeemer. Yeah, did you get Boaz from Bethlehem? Was going to become her redeemer. And before he ever knew all the particulars about Ruth, Boaz began to shower her with kindness. He set in motion the required legal transactions necessary to pay off Ruth's indebtedness. And he did not rest, the scripture says, until Ruth was his wife. 
It's a love story of redemption worth every bit your study, I might add. The New Testament scriptures portray another redeemer whose position in the universe was that of the eternal God. The Bible teaches that God is spirit and does not have a corporal body, but those in need of redemption were of this material world. Men and women enslaved and impoverished by sin, what about them? How are they going to be helped? The scripture therefore speaks of this redeemer saying, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him, destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason... He had to be made like his brothers that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2, verse 14. So that he might become, may I say it, the kinsman redeemer. To provide the needed redemption, God's son became a human being. Like Boaz, he was also a native-born citizen of Bethlehem, whose name was Jesus, the Savior. He, too, looked upon a poor and devastated people, impoverished by their sin, ruined by years of living without God in the world. And Boaz secured Ruth's freedom, canceled her indebtedness through the payment of money. Uh, can money secure a man's release from sin? You know, there's a lot of people that think that. They do. Can a man or a woman buy his or her way to heaven? That offering plate or offering box. is visited each week by people like this who think they're racking up points with God. Our kinsman redeemer who buys sinners' freedom does so by forfeiting his own life. A life for a life. This life he regained through the resurrection and eternal life is promised to all who trust in Jesus Christ as their redeemer. Ruth came under the umbrella of Boaz's redemption but even more important, she, as a pagan idolater, a worshiper of idols, came under the umbrella of God's mercy and grace. No Moabite 
was permitted in the assembly of God's people. But we read in Matthew's chronology of Jesus' Jesus genealogy, and I'm reading scripture from Matthew, Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was mother, Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed became the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David, all the way down the historical line and the final reading of Matthew 1. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Who would have thought that Ruth would be incorporated within the people of God, let alone be included in the genealogy of Christ? But here she is, a living testimony to all of us who are Gentiles by birth. that with God there is mercy and forgiveness and redemption for all who will believe. None of this is accidental or doubtful, for our text says that God chose us in him before the creation of the world. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons, through Jesus Christ. In him we have, here it is, redemption. The buyback. Through his blood, not money. The forgiveness of sins. What a privilege and joy it is to be counted among the redeemed. The psalmist encourages, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Psalm 130, verse 7 and 8. Isaiah echoes similar thoughts. This is what the Lord says the Redeemer, and the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the service of rulers and kings, they will see you and rise up, and princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Isaiah 49, verse 7. Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Those who redeemed from the hand of the foe. Psalm 107, verse 2. It's a marvel to me that because of our sin, that anyone is saved. 
unless we think that God is somehow tweaking his law, you know, to kind of look the other way so we can be saved, you are sadly mistaken if you think that. He redeemed us. Now, he didn't lay out money. Here's a hundred, here's two, here's three thousand, here's five. Not that. Here's my son. Here's his life. Here's his blood. The soul that sins shall die. You deserve to die and be lost for all of eternity. But my son lay down his blood if you will believe and trust in him to be your substitute. I don't need a substitute. Okay. Then you will perish in your sins. You want that? I don't want that. I don't want it for me. I don't want it for my kids. I don't want it for any of you sitting here. I don't want it for the people I love. God is holy, not just love. He's holy. He's a judge. I sometimes watch these judge shows on TV. And I think, just very honestly, boy, I would never want to be a judge. Because the liars come out of the woodwork. The lawyers are liars. The uh, plaintiffs are liars. The defendants are liars, and they pour it on, hoping to deceive the judge and get a ruling in their favor. Let me tell you that when you stand before the God of truth, no liar is going to be able to tweak the response. Better have someone stand in your place, take your penalty for you because you're trusting his work, his righteousness, his life to have done what your life and work cannot do. I'm not going to have a sinner represent me before the throne. I'm going to have the sinless Son of God whose blood is holy and righteous say, you can't have Mr. Luke. I'm sorry, devil. Go your way. Mr. Luke is part of the plan of God. His name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the creation of the world. It's not because he was great. He was a nobody. He was a nothing burger. A thought in the mind of God. That's pretty ethereal, don't you think? Just a thought. But if the thought is connected with the Redeemer. Mr. Luke has a way of forgiveness and cleansing. 
and becoming a child of God. Same holds for you. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? I don't know. I tell you how I will know. I will know when the day comes when you forsake your sin and trust Christ to be your Savior. Then I will know. You say, well, that's kind of after the fact. Yes, it is, but I'm not omniscient, and neither are you. So we do read signs, and we look for fruit. For fruit inspectors. And the righteousness of Christ is ever abundant. In closing, I'd like to change the hymn to 206 in the brown hymnal. Well, I guess I did have that in there. Wow, good. My mind is thinking well this morning. 206 in the brown. When you find 206, will you stand with us?
you do know that God was under no obligation to send his perfect son to a cross to die for you or me or your friends or whoever it is that you value. You do know that. It's mercy. It's grace that brought the Son from glory. In the scripture we read, He became a man for that very purpose. Why? Because God can't die. That's why. But if you can put Him in a skin body, if you can make Him a man, men can die. Men are subject to crosses and spears and whips and striking with rods. And the beauty of it all, if you read John's Gospel, among other places, there's this conversation between God the Father and the Son. And we see the Son volunteering to come. The Father does not coerce Him Dad, what do you want me to do? Well, I need you to become a man. It's because a man has to pay for man's sins. God in spirit can't die. I'll go, Dad. And so the son can say as he does say in John, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This command I have received from my Father. Wow, a willing Savior. A willing sacrifice. That's love, brethren. John 15 says so. Greater love has no man than this than one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I say. Oh, but in Romans, Paul says we're enemies of God, not friends. This becomes even more gracious. While we were enemies, yet Christ died with us. You don't know love like that from just anybody, let alone from the creator of the universe. You need to think hard and long on this. Wow. God came to pursue me, to provide for me a way in which I can be with him in all of eternity, in a place he has prepared for those who love him. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of the gospel, that it's all of grace, it's all of mercy. We didn't earn it, we don't buy it. We can't browbeat God, we can't trick him, we can't make him do what we want him to do. We can't make him love us. 
There's nothing lovable in us. We are sinners. Full of disobedience to God, not obedience to God. And who loves the disobedient, arrogant, self-righteous people? Even in our world, we don't love people like that. They are an offense to us. But our God loved us and determined to make us a new creature in Christ. And we are if we're in Christ. We've been changed. Can't put it aside. Lord, will you do that for somebody here today? Will you draw them to yourself? Will they come and simply say, you know, I've had enough of this sinful life. I've had enough of fighting you, God. I'm giving up. I just want to know Jesus and salvation. Please, Lord, save my soul. Lord, will you do that for somebody today? And we'll praise you for what you do. May they have the courage to say, yes, I prayed that prayer. And I am pleased to say that God has been invited into my life. I pray, Lord, that you'll be such a person. Bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ today. May they be willing to share their faith in Christ. Amen. We are dismissed.